You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. In 2 Timothy, uh, in chapter 3 this morning, so you want to grab your Bibles and begin turning there. It'll be on the screen for you, too, if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, as you're turning there, I want to get a uh, just a quick announcement out to you guys. We do have a fall festival coming up. I know Patrick's probably going to announce this again later, but just thought it would be good if I get the word out there as well. We've got a fall festival coming up on uh, October 30th on a Sunday, and it'll be in the evening. We're going to have some big inflatables. Uh, we've got Dre's food truck coming. Uh, we've got special scoops ice cream uh, or frozen treats or whatever it is coming as well. And, uh, and then I think we'll have a bonfire and roasting some weenies on a pitchfork, some games for kids and so on and so forth. And so uh, I think it should be a good evening and a good time to hopefully bless uh, Hastings South of the Tracks or anybody who wants to come. And so we've got some uh, posters and flyers out on the welcome table. Uh, it, as you're leaving today, if you want to grab a couple of those, maybe tack those up to a, a tack board at a grocery store or a gas station or hand them out to your friends and family and invite people. I think that would be really, really awesome. We would just like to fill up our property outside with as many families as we can on that evening. We also are going to need some volunteers for that. So uh, if, uh, if you would like to volunteer, please talk to Jen. Jen will raise her hand. And then the other thing we need is we need as much candy as you can possibly grab and donate. So if uh, you can get some bags of the individually wrapped candies and then give those to Jen so that we can use that to give to kiddos uh, when they come that evening, that would be really awesome. Again, if you've got questions, just talk to Jen. Uh, I want to keep getting that in front of you guys. Uh, it's just a good opportunity for us to bless the neighborhood around us and the city of Hastings as the Lord allows. And so uh, now that I got that out there, we'd like to take us into uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, we're just past the halfway point in the book. I'm, I'm sure everybody's probably happy to hear that. It'd be a nice short series, right? We should finish up just after the holidays are over because we'll be taking a break here pretty soon to uh, jump into some uh, Christmas sermons. You guys realize Christmas is right around the, the corner, right? Does anybody feel like we were just there already? Um, it's nuts, <laughs> the years. Everybody always said, boy, the years just passed by. And the older I get, the truer that is. Um, I love the Christmas season. Uh, I love the focus on uh, Jesus as our Savior coming to this earth. And uh, definitely love the food. That is always something I love about that season as well. So we'll be coming to that, and then we'll finish up this series on the tail end of the year. Uh, but for this week, we are in chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I would like to warn you ahead of time, this might be the heaviest passage in the book. And so um, there's some heavy stuff in this one. So I just want to uh, kind of let you know that now. Um, I trust and believe the Lord has something he wants to speak to each of us uh, through his word. Trust that when his word is preached and spoken, that it goes out, does not return void, has a purpose um, for which it was designed. So, beginning in verse 1, let me read. Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind, and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, Lord, we 
do thank you for your word. Lord, we, uh, I don't know, I, I read these words, I think we hear these words, and uh, these are hard words, <clears throat> and they're heavy words, and I, 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 they're convicting words, too. So, Father, I, I ask God that you would come, <clears throat> that you would help us uh, to hear from your word. Uh, Lord, help me as I speak your word. I, I read these words. Um, yeah, deeply convicting, and uh, God, I don't, I don't feel adequate to preach your word this morning, so God, I pray that you would come, uh, Lord, I pray that you would cleanse my heart and purify my mind, and uh, purify my words um, as I try to speak on your behalf to your people, I pray God that um, I would bring you honor and do good to your people, Lord, I pray most of all that your spirit would just be here to move, Lord, I pray that you would come down by, by the power of the cross, by the power of the empty tomb. I pray that you would remove um, any unholiness among us. Lord, cleanse us and help us to hear from you. Help us to draw close to you. Lord, magnify the work of your son Jesus at the cross in front of us. Uh, trust you to do this work. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You may be seated. As I said, some, some tough words here. <laughs> um, as I was was reading this and studying it this week, uh, I, I know that part of the general theme of 1 Timothy has to do with making disciples. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of all over this letter, all over this book. Um, and, I, and I keep thinking, you guys have heard me say it, uh, making disciples is no easy task. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough uh, row to hoe, right? Um, and especially when you look at verse 1 of the text here, uh, where the Apostle Paul warns young Timothy uh, with those opening words, says that he says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, right? Um, we know that young Timothy is one of the pastors uh, in the church at Ephesus, which is the church that the Apostle Paul had planted many years earlier. Paul had left Timothy uh, in charge with a bunch of other leaders and and members of that church. And now what he's doing is he's writing this letter to young Timothy and to the church to instruct them on what it means to be a faithful leader in a church that is focused on making disciples to the very end. I, I take that theme of making disciples from the first and second chapter of the book. I just believe that that, that theme of making disciples just is saturated all over it. The calling and uh, the command, I think, for all believers to be disciple makers, um, to, to be about the business of sharing the gospel with unbelievers, to be in the business of baptizing new believers, to be teaching those new believers to walk in obedience to God's commands, um, to be doing all of that just like a faithful soldier like a competitive athlete, like a hard-working farmer. You think about all of the words that Paul has used so far to undergird and support and build out this theme or theology of making disciples. Um, it's not an easy task. It's hard, hard work. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's letting Timothy know another time that making disciples is very difficult is that a tractor? No, that's a motorcycle. <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> well, making disciples is a difficult task, right? Why? Well, I think what Paul's saying here is a difficult task because we're living in difficult days. Um, for you, sitting in your chair today, you might be wondering, like, what does this have to do with me? And... Um, I think it's easy sometimes to think that this type of language and these types of passages or these types of books in the Bible only apply to pastors or people with leadership titles. Um, I want to assure you um, that this passage, I believe, has a lot to say to those of you who may be here who are just thinking about following Jesus. It's a lot to say to you. 
Um, Because it speaks to the seriousness of what it means to be Christian. Speaks to the seriousness of what it means to make disciples, to carry a cross. Um, If the Lord's been moving on your heart to trust in Jesus, repent of your sin, and follow Him, then an aspect of that has to do with once you're saved, you're now enlisted in an army of believers who are called to a mission of making disciples. That's every believer. Which means then that if you're here or you're hearing this message and you are a believer, then this passage certainly has a ton that it would say to you because you're a member or you're a leader in the church. Um, Since it's all about making disciples, this applies to you too, not just pastors. And I think a phrase that I landed on as I've studied this passage, but even as I've just thought about this letter of 2 Timothy, um, landed on this, this phrase that when you think about these last days, these difficult times, to me, sounds to me like the chaos of ungodliness. When you think about when ungodliness sets into a culture, into a family, or into a relationship, what it creates, the outcome, the result is chaos. It would be easy for us to look around us in the world today and say, yeah, there's a lot of chaos that we are living in. So the question becomes then, okay, if we are living in last days, as Paul is talking about to Timothy, we recognize we're at least a few thousand years later or so, right? So if Timothy thought those were the last days, We could definitely easily believe when we're living in the last days. Who knows how long a season of the last days lasts. There's chaos. And the chaos is here because of ungodliness. How how do you make disciples in the midst of the chaos of ungodliness? Well, the first thing I notice in the text, if you look at verses 2 and 5, is that we need to be on the lookout, need to watch out for godless people. Look out for godless people. And this is why I think Paul tells Timothy in verses 2 through 5 that there will be people who are what? Well, he uses all these words. Let me read through them again. The kinds of people that are ungodly are these kinds of people. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Amazes me that that one makes it in there. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. Without self-control, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, he says. So when the Apostle Paul says this, he doesn't mince his words at all. In fact, he uses a lot of words, right? He uses a lot of descriptors to help us understand what godless people look like. I think Paul wants to be certain that we will know exactly what to be on the lookout for. And you think of young Timothy, if you do a study on on Timothy, uh, you get a sense that Timothy is young, number one. Uh, But Timothy, I think, is kind of timid. He might be kind of shy, might be kind of fearful. And when you do a study on the things that Paul says to Timothy, you just think about it through Timothy's eyes. So if young Timothy was having any kinds of problems, being afraid to stand up to the false teachers that were present in his day, that were attempting to influence the Ephesian church, then Paul's words here, the words that Paul uses, the the harshness of the words that he uses, I think would encourage young Timothy to see these false teachers for who they really were. They were godless people. And these godless people were creating chaos in the church family. So think about these people and the way that Paul has described them. Think about them maybe using some different words. These people were self-centered. They loved to accumulate wealth instead of being generous. They boasted about themselves, they boasted about their knowledge, and they boasted about their abilities. 
And, and he says that they abused and they used God's people for their own selfish purposes. They disobeyed and they dishonored their parents. They were ungrateful. They were greedy. And true holiness was never their goal. They were cold-hearted. They could never be pleased. And they spread their gossip and they spread their slander with their out-of-control tons. They, they, their out-of-control tons were a lot like ships, as James would say. <clears throat> and the way I would say it is ships without rudders and without anchors, because they would just run crazy. He continues to describe them. Um, these godless people, they're, they're brutally violent with their words. They didn't care for anything good. But instead, they were, they were infatuated with, with being treacherous and reckless in their puffed-up, self-serving lifestyles. They loved all the pleasures of this world, and they hated God at the same time. They may have appeared to be godly at times. But their thoughts and their words, their behaviors, their actions, their lifestyles, actually proved that they rejected the power of the gospel to not only save, but to transform. These are the godless people Paul is talking about. That's the descriptors he's giving. And Paul's instructions here to Timothy is this, and to us, to watch out for these kinds of people amidst the chaos of ungodliness. Watch out for these kinds of people. They're godless and avoid them. That's, that's strong. You might think of another place in Scripture where Paul is speaking to the Corinthians. And uh, at some point he says you need to avoid this person. And in fact, he, he talks about excommunicating a man out of the church because he's been sleeping with his stepmom. That's a pretty, it's a pretty extreme example. Uh, it's a very publicly destructive sin that this man was engaged in and was not repenting of. 1 Corinthians and Paul says very clearly, you need to oust him out of your church family in hopes that he might repent. For someone that calls themselves a brother, or calls themselves a sister, calls themselves a Christian, but lives in this openly public, brazen, and destructive fashion, will hurt your church and not bring honor to the Lord. Have nothing to do with him. He says, don't even eat with somebody like this. Paul then qualifies everything he said about that man in 1 Corinthians, and he moves on and he says, I'm not talking about those people that are out in the world, those who are not believers, those who do not claim Jesus. I'm not, I'm not saying don't eat with them, because our calling is to be among the lost. And yet for someone who says, I believe in Jesus, and yet lives in this way, avoid that person, have nothing to do with them. I think there's a connection to this text here where he says, avoid such people. Because the people that Paul is talking about are people who were once leaders, once members of the Ephesian church, and have now strayed away from the faith, and are now teaching doctrine as though it's godly, and yet they're not godly, they're actually godless. Have nothing to do with them, avoid such people. Strong words. Sobering words. Uh, if you've ever come to a crossroads with a friend, or come to a crossroads with a, a relative um, that you once were close to, that their behavior in the relationship has become so destructive and so sinful, so godless, that you've had to put a boundary up and you've had to say, not until you change, I love you and I'm here, but until something changes you and I can't spend time together. If you've ever reached that point, then I think you feel maybe and understand the pain and the hurt and the hardship of this text, right? And we would be foolish to think that these same kinds of boundaries at times would not be raised in a church family. Because if the family um, itself, the family unit, is a good image of what the church should look like, then we ought to know and at times, in the midst of making disciples, we all would maybe need to make tough decisions like this where we would say, need to avoid 
such people. But as we read these words, I think that they are the kind of words that should cause each of us to pause, too. Right? And I think it's easy for us to hear these words at times and maybe have somebody else in our mind. Okay, right? Wives, don't be elbowing your husbands. Husbands, definitely don't elbow your wives because you'll be sleeping in the garage tonight. Okay? We, we need to first apply these things to our own hearts and lives, right? That's, that's the first place to start. Um, a good friend of mine who always says, you know, I'm a pastor of this church. He's a pastor. pastor of this church. He goes, I try to tell my people all the time, um, the biggest problem in this church is not you, it's me. Uh, I love when he says that. I love that phrasing. Um, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul when he says, I'm the chief of all sinners. I think it's easy for guys who maybe stand in the lights on a, on a stage to forget that, right? But the same principle applies to all of us. It begins here, a deep, cold, hard look inside. Are there any areas in my heart and my life that would be deemed as godless? And you know, as I sat with this text, that if, you're, if I'm honest, you know, if I'm honest, and... You know, I, I don't think I would stand on stage and, and bear every deep, dark secret of my soul to everybody. I don't know if I would ever want any of you guys to do that either. But if I'm honest, when I, when I think about these words that Paul's using, that, that God is speaking to us, really, right? Through the writing of Paul, I, I go, man, that's, that's a, this, is a tough, this is a tough road to hoe here. If I, if I turn the light around on me, the inspection and I ask the Holy Spirit to inspect my heart and my soul. So I, I think these words should cause us first to pause, ask the Spirit of God, am I in danger of being this kind of person? Are there any of these words that describe any of my thoughts, any of my words, any of my actions? And then I, then I think these words would then, should cause us, cause me, cause you to repent. Confess that sin. Ask for forgiveness. Ask God once again, apply your blood, your shed blood, apply your broken body, apply your, your saving work at the cross over me. Purify me, cleanse my heart of unrighteousness. Mold me, shape me. And in that process, need to, need to trust, trust that, that what Jesus loves to do. And this is probably a picture that it's easy for us to say sometimes, maybe harder for us to feel, but what, what Jesus loves to do is to save the worst of sinners. It's, that's what he came to do. And so if as you're reading these words and thinking about these words and asking the Spirit to, to examine you, you, you feel some sense of guilt or some sense of shame, there, there is an appropriate level of guilt and shame. There's an inappropriate level too. An appropriate level of guilt and shame when you read words that convict you and the difference between conviction and condemnation is that with conviction, guilt and shame moves you to the cross of Christ. But with condemnation, when you feel guilt and shame, it moves you to self-pity. And so this isn't meant to move us to self-pity. Like this, is, this kind of examination is meant to move us to the cross where we would continue to repent and confess and ask once again, God, please, Shine the light of the love, sacrifice of your cross over me. Help me be reminded once again that Jesus seriously does love to save the worst of sinners. He loves to redeem people from the shackles of the, the chaos of the ungodliness that gets rooted in our hearts. And I would say this too. I don't think that, that as, I, as I think about the gospel and I think about, like, when does the cross, the power of the cross, the victory of the empty tomb, the, the hope of eternity, when is it, like, the most vibrant? When is it, like, the most lit up, the most attractive? And I think it's, it's when you realize that Jesus loves to save ungodly people who once had these words tattooed all over them. When you look in the mirror and you think, that's all I can see is these describers, maybe. These descriptors. And the beauty of the cross, the empty tomb, and the promise of heaven 
is that that's when it's on, it's like no greater display of God's love in that is than, than when God reaches down with his nail-pierced hands and he pulls a godless person out of the chaos of their own ungodliness. And then in the midst of that, refashions them and reshapes them and transforms them into an instrument for his own glory. I love the fact that Jesus said, hey, I, I did not come for those who think they're not sick. I came for those who know they're sick. When you think about the Apostle Paul, he's writing these words, right? And you think about the way he was saved. The way Jesus got a hold of him, right? Dude's a terrorist. <laughs> he's a terrorist. Jesus comes and knocks him off his camel or donkey. Or I don't know what he was riding. Horse. Just knocks him off of it. And confronts him. Why are you persecuting me? I love those personal words when Jesus confronts Paul. He didn't say, hey, why are you persecuting my church? Because that's what Paul was doing. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? From that moment forward, Paul is a changed man. So Paul's writing all these harsh words knowing that at one point in his life, all of these words would have described him to a T. Transformed into an instrument for God's glory. So he knows this truth intimately. So he has no problem saying, hey, watch out for godless people. Amidst the chaos of ungodliness, watch out for them. Don't shrink back from proclaiming the power of the gospel to save and to transform even the worst of us. So that's the first thing I see. Second thing I see in the text is that we need to watch out for creepy people. Okay, so you got ungodly people and you got creepy people. Alright, verses 67. You catch it. Amidst the chaos of ungodliness, got to watch out for creepy people. This is why the Apostle Paul warned John Timothy, verses 6 to 7, says, hey, keep your eyes peeled for people. In parentheses, I would add especially men, because the, the language is, is definitely male-centered. Um, but I think it applies across genders. Um, this is a very specific situation he's speaking about. And yet it's not that we don't see anything any different today either. Keep your eyes peeled for, for these kinds of people. They creep into households. Creep. That's where I got that word creepy. <laughs> Get this picture of somebody like sneaking under the cover of darkness secretly into a household. And he says specifically, keep, out, keep your eyes peeled for these people. They creep into households. They capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. This last piece always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That's fascinating. You ever meet somebody who's like, seems like they want to learn? And you, and you feel like every time you talk to them, you're like teaching them something, but the reality is they never arrive at the full, like transformative knowledge of the truth? That's the picture. Now the foundation of Paul's warning here, I think, is that what we need to be on the lookout for is creepy people, right? Creepy people who take advantage of those who are less fortunate. That's the overriding principle that I think we see here. Now, I, don't, I don't think Paul is in any way making a statement about the ability of a woman to stick up for herself. I think that would be a destruction of the text to read it that way. He's not, he's not making a statement about the ability of a woman to stick up for herself. But I do think it's the opposite. He's actually making a very bold statement in that day, especially uh, about the value and, and the dignity of women who are being taken advantage of by some slime balls who are actually wolves in, in sheep's clothing. We have a responsibility, and not just a responsibility, friends. We have a, a, a privilege at the same time, to protect one another from the advancement of wolves who love to prey on the weak and the vulnerable. When you think about wolves, the crazy thing is I, I love wolves in the wild. I just love them. I like, if there was such a thing as spirit animal, I, it would be a wolf. I don't think there's such a thing, okay? Just, just to clarify, 
and take out of context. And well, there's no such thing. But I love they're beautiful and they're vicious. I just I love wolves in the wild. <laughs> Side note: I actually owned one once when I was a kid. I'll tell you that story another time. Um, beautiful, beautiful animals. <clears throat> but when you think about wolves, uh, they constantly set their sights on the weak and the vulnerable. That's what they go after. They set their sights on the weak and the vulnerable. The, those who are struggling with sin. Those who can uh, easily be led astray by unrestrained desires. When you think about wolves in that context, in a human context, you, you think right away, these people are absolute creeps. They, they give me the heebie-jeebies, right? For me, it gives you a feeling of anger. And if, if you take the logical um, illustration and work it out to its very end, th- these, are, these are full-grown, capable people, right? Adult-like people taking advantage of, of those who you might regard as children. That, I think, brings the illustration home. That's where I feel the anger, right? It's, it's taking advantage of the weak and the helpless. They pretend to be learners of the truth. It's how, they, it's how they get in the door. They don't ever actually arrive at a true knowledge of the truth that actually sets men free from their destructive ways. Now, there have been pastor after pastor after pastor, quote-unquote, leader after leader after leader, in the news over the years. And at some point, guys, I, I, I quit reading the articles because... I think for, you know, for a while, you, you read some of that stuff so you can keep up on stuff, so that maybe as a, as a minister or a member of a church, you can kind of say to other ministers, hey, watch out for that leader. Like, don't read their stuff. Don't, because you want to protect. Uh, to be honest with you, at some point, it's almost like you just you kind of stop reading some of it because some of it is so horrifying. I remember reading um, one, it was a young man that was, you know, one, one young, you know, mid-20s maybe, maybe early 30s, and putting out videos, spoken word videos about Jesus, very, very popular, rose to fame really quick. Then come to find out, um, he was using his uh, fame uh, to get with women and sleep with them and would promise he was going to marry them, multiple women. Um, It's a creep, right? It's a creep. Those stories, you, you, you you could spend a long time reading, and you just walk away feeling dirty. So that's why I said, probably not a good idea to go out and start researching this stuff, but I just tell you, you know, it's all over the place. When I think about God's church, made up of members, right, people bought and paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. Yeah. Wolves. Wolves. Someone who claims to care for you. Now, I, 10 years, planting church. We started out and still, you know, wanted to plant a church for people who don't like church. It just rolls off the tongue really fast now. Um, wanted to plant a church for people who don't like church. And then the reality is, we just do church, right? Like, what does that even mean? <laughs> you know, I think about that now, um, 10 years later, I go, well, why did we even say that? And, Running a rescue mission within a yard of hell, making disciples within a yard of hell, and we we attracted and gathered. Yeah, that's that's where we've seen God do some transformative work. But let me say, at times it felt like for every one person that we could like pull back from the flames of hell and see God do transformative work, there were ten others right behind them that always learning, never arrived, sneaking into households, wrecking families, hurting people, and and. The difficulty is, is I have to say, the, the primarily, mostly men. And it's not that women can't do destructive things. I get that. But that, that has been the trajectory that, that, that we've witnessed. Painful. And for me, when I've sat in those meetings and confronted said men, um, the hardship for me is when I'm looking at the woman involved, I see one of my daughters. God's done a lot of work in my heart and life. This text has been, it's just been one I've gone back to. I think I've sat in meetings where I've, I've said, you, my friend, if you don't turn around and walk the other direction, you are this man. You need to turn. Yeah. 
By God's grace, there's been a small handful of times where I've seen God do transformative work there. More often than not, though, um, they don't. So these words um, I wrote down just come from years of grinding out what it means to make disciples in the midst of chaos of ungodliness, right? When someone comes to you and claims to care for you while trying to lure you into sinful behavior, that person is an imposter. That person is a fraud. That person is a creepy wolf. His only desire is to feed his out-of-control desires on what you have to offer him. And what needs to happen to this person is they need to get caught in a wolf trap. So that the sheep can be protected. And so that the wolf might have the opportunity to get saved from his own impending doom and then transformed into an instrument of righteousness. That's what needs to happen. And there was an image that I got in my head as I wrote some of these words down in my journal this week. The image that I had in my head is a picture of shepherds, literal shepherds in a field with with sheep all around, right? These are church leaders and church members. They're, They're on high alert. Got wolves prowling around, you could say, in their midst almost. They're on high alert, keeping their eye out for those wolves. And the church of God, we, if you're a believer, you're part of this church, or thinking about becoming part of this church, or thinking about following Jesus, the church has a privilege and a responsibility for making disciples in a a healthy and safe atmosphere. Now, when you think about a healthy and safe atmosphere that welcomes the weak and welcomes the vulnerable and says, hey, we're, we're for you, we're about you, we want to walk with you, want to protect and nurture you on the, the milk and the meat of the gospel. When you, when you think about that, it's an awesome responsibility and privilege that we have as a church family to be about that kind of work. That excites me, as heavy and as hard as some of these words and descriptors are. I think about that work of providing a safe place Especially for a lot of us that came out of some of these backgrounds, right? For, for me, I know my past, you know. Um, I know the things I currently struggle with. Failings. I'm thankful that God has called us to this kind of work and that his word backs it up. I do think that as we read these verses, again, you need to hear these verses, need to ask the Spirit of the living God, reveal which kind of person am I. Am I a creepy wolf? Am I, am I a weak and vulnerable person? Am I a church member or leader who needs to be on the lookout? Am I one of those three? Which one am I? And then in that process, I need to ask God, come transform the wolf. I have a friend of mine named Bob Thune. I have to make sure that I quote him because I may never forget that he said this to me one time when we were meeting. And he pastors a church in, uh, in Omaha called Quorum Deo. And, and I just remember Bob in a meeting, we were talking about different struggles in ministry that each of us were having. And, and uh, he just looked up at me and he goes, you know, I sat down with this guy and I said, and I said, you are exhibiting wolf-like behavior. And if you don't turn around, you keep going, I'm going to have to deem you as a wolf for the protection of the flock. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus loves to save wolves and transform them into real sheep, not wolves with sheep's clothing. And his point was, Jesus saves wolves too. You know? We may not, you and I may not exhibit some of the heavy characteristics here, but all wolf-like tendencies come back to self-service. That's really what it comes back to. Um, so you need to ask God, transform the wolf, remove the wolf if need be, strengthen, protect the weak and vulnerable, give courage, wisdom to the member and leader of God's flock. Pray that for each other. So you've got to be on the lookout for creepy wolves. Third thing I notice Watch out for opposition. Watch out for opposition. This is verse 8. When you think about chaos of ungodliness, looking out for opposition, there's always going to be opposition, right? Always going to be opposition to the advancement of the gospel. If If you're going to be a believer and be about the business of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples... If you're going to be about the business of taking what you have received and passing it on to other faithful men and women who will take what they've received and pass it on to others, and that process is going to continue, if 
we're going to be about that business, there's always going to be opposition. Always going to feel the pressure. Always going to feel the threat of those who oppose the work of making disciples of Jesus Christ. And especially, I think, when you, when you start to take in the fact that for us, we communicate our mission as though we want to make disciples within a yard of hell. Right? That's always going to get opposition from our enemy because he believes that that is his territory. Step into enemy-occupied territory. He's not just going to lay down. And Paul knows this all too well. He's faced one challenge after another from people with names and faces who have opposed his mission to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he knows that this kind of opposition is nothing new to God's people, right? Nothing new to God's people who are seeking to advance God's kingdom reign and rule to the ends of the earth. And that's why Paul reminds Timothy in verse 8 of two men, Janus and Jambres. That's kind of a funny thing. If you do a word search in your Bible on Janus and Jambres, you know how many times these names show up in your Bible? One time. Right here. That's interesting. And this is what he says. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So now you have a connection. Oh, Moses, we know who that guy is, right? Ten Commandments guy. He confronted Pharaoh, right? When Pharaoh had all of Israel in slavery, captivity, God calls Moses, says, you're going to go talk to Pharaoh? And it's the whole, let my people go speech. And you get all the plagues and so on and so forth that happen because Pharaoh's a, a fool. Paul reminds Timothy, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, the men you're dealing with now, also oppose the truth. They're, they're men corrupted in mind. They're disqualified regarding the faith. In some regards, still asking this question, who are these two men that oppose Moses and when and where? Right? Um, if you look at biblical history, right, you just take the Bible and you kind of look at it as a, as a history book from the beginning to the end, right? You go to the garden, all the way to the end, Revelation, um, what Satan has always done and will always do is he will use created beings, created beings to oppose the kingdom of God. And in this case, uh, what Paul, I think, is, is referencing is he's, is he's referencing the opposition that Moses faced with Pharaoh when he, when he confronted Pharaoh. And you might remember the story. Um, Pharaoh basically had two leading witches, call them magicians, that uh, tried to um, mimic the things that God was doing through Moses. And for a little bit, they were able to mimic the same thing, so it caused people to kind of question, well, who, like, who's really serving God? And at some point, they were unable to mimic what God was doing through Moses, and it, it basically justified him in front of Israel. So you, you can look at that in Exodus 7 through 9. Um, Israelite history um, has it that those two men that were those witches, that their names were Janus and Jambres. Um, so it's just a little extra study you do to find that out, but it is interesting because it not brings context, right? Now you put yourself in Timothy's shoes, and it's like, oh, well, Timothy knew exactly what Paul's talking about, even if we didn't exactly know right away. Timothy knew exactly what was going on. From the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, all the way to Moses' showdown with Pharaoh, his witches or magicians in Egypt, all the way to the creepy, wolf-like false teachers in Timothy's day, to the the various people who would seek to advance their own self-serving agendas even in our day and call themselves believers while doing so, the kingdom of heaven has always suffered opposition, has always suffered violence, you might say. I think the scriptures tell us that violent, vigilant men have always been about the business of advancing the power of the cross and the the victory of the empty tomb and the, the promise of eternity with full force. It's not a weak message. It's not a weak mission that we run. Moses, the people of Israel, experienced, you go back to that story, they experienced freedom in a miraculous way from slavery. And they experienced freedom from, from that opposition, from those magicians, those men, Janus and Jambres. And they, they experienced that as they trusted and, and submitted and surrendered to God. But you think about the men that opposed Moses, right? Those two men and Pharaoh and all his armies. Remember you know, the tail end of the story, right? 
What happens? They get backed up against the, was the Red Sea, right? They're like all up against the sea and everybody's afraid. You know, God tells Moses, lift your staff. And we know the water parts. They get through safely on the other side. Totally miraculous thing. What happens to the bad guys? Janus and John Brays included. The ones who opposed Moses. These men who opposed Moses and, and ultimately by default found themselves opposing God, which might I say is probably not a good place to find ourselves in. I do not want to find myself opposing the God of the universe. And those men faced death and eternal destruction when the waters of the Red Sea crashed down upon them. Next to this 14. Which leads me to the final point of the text. So the fourth thing you see is that we need to rest assured that God will prevail. You can rest assured that God will prevail in the midst of the chaos of ungodliness. And Paul assures Timothy of this. He reminds him of how those two men who opposed Moses, as well as I would say how the men who now oppose him, he says they will not get very far. For their folly or their foolishness will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You know, it's a tough place to be, I think. You put yourself in Moses and Timothy's shoes, especially when you've got some folks that um, were at that time fairly influential, popular, you might say, in the body. Um, and even for Moses and Israel that day, those magicians who worked for Pharaoh would have been very influential throughout the culture, would have been hard to turn people's attention off of them. And what Moses trusted is that God would vindicate. And what Paul is telling Timothy is, hey, God will vindicate. See, it's absolute foolishness to oppose the advancement of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, God will always prevail against those who oppose him. God will always prevail against those who oppose his people. Those who oppose him and oppose his people would wind up just like those two men, Janus and Jambres. Utter destruction, the bottom of the sea, the chaos of their own ungodliness, stuck in the mud, gone. When I read that and I go, man, that's, that's both a warning and an encouragement, right? Both a warning and an encouragement for all of us. It's a warning to anyone who would be on the wrong side of the cross of Jesus. Also be an encouragement to those who are on the right side of the cross of Jesus because God will always prevail. God will always be victorious amidst the chaos of ungodliness. So in conclusion, I'll wrap up this way. I think, I studied through all of this and uh, prayed my way through it. I think the only thing you, the only thing you can ask yourself at the end of all of this when you, when, you, when you think about it is, which side of the cross am I on? Right? Which side of the cross am I on? Am I on the side of the cross that offers me salvation and transformation? Or am I on the side of the cross that promises me death, destruction, and separation from God from all of eternity? Which side of the cross am I on? See, if you're on the wrong side of the cross, um, then here's the good news. You can find salvation at the foot of a bloody cross. And all you need to do is recognize your sin, right? Re recognize your rebellion against God. Come to Jesus. Ask him to forgive you. Confess your faith in Christ's work at the cross on your behalf. Trust. Trust that he will save and transform even the worst of us because Jesus loves to come and save the worst of us. If you find yourself on the saving side of that cross, right? if you're already on that side where you say, I've trusted in Jesus. He has saved me. I believe that. I've seen his work in my life. If you're on that side already, then, then this is not necessarily a warning, although I think it is a check, right? Ask the Spirit to reveal inside of you any ways that you may be acting in your old self. Repent from that. Turn from that. Trust once again fresh. But also for you, there's assurance here. Right? There's assurance. You can rest assured that whatever opposition you've been facing in this life, God will prevail. 
Simply this. God has been victorious in the bloody cross of Jesus. Right? God has been victorious in the empty tomb of Jesus. He will reign forever victorious in the return of Jesus. God has, and, and in a sense, He will ultimately completely prevail over the presence, the power, and the penalty of our sin. He has, and He will prevail over Satan, sin, and death. And of this, of this, I believe you and I can rest assured if we've trusted in Christ, Jesus has been, will forever be victorious amidst the chaos of ungodliness. I believe that he will help us to not only be disciples who have been saved out of some pretty grimy, rotten places, but I think he'd also help us to make disciples who have been saved out of some really grimy places. Amen? Would you stand with me? Father, as we close our time coming to the Lord's table, remembering and celebrating the saving work that you did at that cross on our behalf. God, I pray that you would give us rest from our work. Give us refreshment. Remind us that at that cross you said it is finished, completely finished, the saving work that you did on our behalf, and yet you're still available by the power of your Spirit to transform, to change. Now, Lord, help us to find shelter at the foot of that bloody cross. Thank you so much for giving your Son on our behalf. God, we love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.